Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Latter, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The works of Irish poet and dramatist Oscar Wilde are known for their wit and skewering of Victorian era values. Wilde's satire, The Importance of Being Earnest, is considered his greatest play both for its humor and indictment of Victorian social hypocrisy. Atlanta's Celtic Theatre Company, Arish Theatre, has a new take on Ernest. Later in the hour, Arish co-founder and director Kathleen McManus tells us about her adaptation, which keeps the Victorian characters and add steampunk spirit to the 1899 classic. We'll also hear from actor John Ammerman, who plays the role of Lady Bracknell and delivers the line, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. First... Let's eat. The holidays are over. A new year has begun. After indulging in home-cooked meals, you may want to venture out and try new restaurants in the city. Three writers who contributed to an extensive article for Atlanta magazine on the best new restaurants of Atlanta, join me now via Zoom. Christiane Lauderbach is Atlanta Magazine's dining columnist and longtime editor of Knife and Fork. Sam Worley is deputy editor of Atlanta Magazine, as well as a freelance writer. And Mike Jordan is a food and culture writer in addition to being editor-in-chief for Butter ATL. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. We're all happy. Could each of you just give our listeners a little bit of background as to how you became interested in writing about food? Let me just start as a French person. It's my duty to be interested in food. I grew up in Paris. Food is everywhere. (laughs) 
So I've been passionate about markets and food culture, basically when I started walking. Oh. Mike? Since childhood, I've always been a pretty picky eater. Didn't eat cheese that much. Didn't eat a lot of cream sauces, but always fresh vegetables. So I became the salad making kid of the family and would put all the colors together and folks that I did a good job and went from that to just working in the restaurant and the food and beverage industry while I was supporting myself as a young journalist, like many do. And, you know, launching Thrillist here in Atlanta in 2008 was a time of boom of independent local restaurants. And I just got to cover so many of them that I decided there's a deeper way to get into this. And so that led me to great things like being able to contribute to this best new restaurants issue in Atlanta Magazine. <laughs> great. And Sam, how about you? I have been in journalism for about, I guess, a decade now and have just sort of like happened to have done some food writing here and there. I worked for a little while for Epicurious, but before I was a writer for a few years, I was a baker <laughs> and worked in a few bakeries and pastry shops. And that's it. That was your gateway. <laughs> yeah. I could see where bakeries and pastry shops would make you want to stay in that realm. <laughs> Christiane, you are among the best-known dining critics in our region, and you are recognizable. So I wondered, when you find a new restaurant in the area to visit and critique, do you let the owner or manager or the chef know you're about to visit and write about the restaurant? Oh, never, never. I just pounce on restaurants. Of course, I'm easy to identify because I've got an accent. Also, I'm old. You know, there's hardly such thing as a totally anonymous restaurant reviewer. Indeed. I never, I, <laughs> I hate making reservations, so I, I don't. At least they don't know ahead of time that I'm coming. Okay, so you do use a different name if you make a reservation? I cannot remember the last time I made any reservation. Sometimes I ask my guests to make a reservation. Sometimes I forget the name they are going to be using. So I'm not a reservation kind of person. I'm a sneak. <laughs> I'm sneaky. I, I'm able to eat like early, late at the bar. I just roll with the punches. Okay. When writing up a review of a new restaurant or one you've just discovered, what are the most important considerations? Happiness. I mean, does it make me happier? <laughs> For me, the best thing to consider when writing about a new restaurant is that it is a new restaurant. And you give everyone, at least I give everyone, a little bit of grace. That comes from experience working in the business as well. So when you understand that a lot of times the, the whole grind of opening getting your license or getting everything ready and in line to be open on day one, not everything is going to be ready. So there's always a little bit of a waiting game and there's ways to cover an opening as to, okay, you've been around long enough to have your stuff together, but let's go in and see what's happening. But there's just consideration that who's involved what does it seem to be leaning towards? Does it have a plan? When do you believe that they will get it right? Some places come right out the gate, most places don't. So it's really just taking the time to analyze what is this place attempting to do? And when they are propped up and they've done the warm up and friends and family, what do they have to show? So do you visit more than once before writing a review? 
as much as possible. Yes. I, and I don't, like Christian said, I don't announce my arrival when it's something like that. Now, I, I will attend media events when someone is announcing something and they're just having an open house for media. I'll do that. I think that's important for what I do specifically. But when it comes to reviewing or looking at a place and deciding if it's worth including in a story like Atlanta's best new restaurants, especially in 2021, it was really important to see if people could be consistent to find out, you know, what they were aiming for. And you don't just get that in visit one, especially if people know you're coming. Yeah. And you raise an important point about the past year. People have avoided public places for the most part and were much more involved in home cooking or ordering takeout or having food delivered. But the restaurant industry was in crisis and many places closed. How do you think the past year impacted our appreciation for the food industry? May I just say one thing? I have not changed my policy about food being delivered to my house, which never happened. Even when my children were little, they didn't even get pizza delivered. I mean, for me, I like the freshness, the surprise of food. For me, restaurant experience is so much more than the food. So delivery, uh, takeout, not that much. <laughs> so I have gone to fewer restaurants, but when I go to a restaurant, I go to a restaurant. I expect the social experience as well as the food experience. So, Christian, during the early days of lockdown, shutdown, even when some restaurants had pivoted to providing takeout, you never did that. I did not do takeout. I make an exception for an exceptional restaurant. For example, Staple House, which I consider the number one restaurant in Atlanta, did a wonderful pivot to cooking restaurant level food and having a system for eating on their garden, on their patio. They did an exceptional job. So yes, I will go there. But will I simply pick up some stuff and drag it home? I have zero interest in having <laughs> food <laughs> from a restaurant on my own table. That's all. That's eccentric, but that's the way I function. Okay. Sam, why was it important to highlight restaurants that have remained since opening in 2019. You made a special point of including those. So I've, I'm pretty new at the magazine. I've, I've been here a little less than a year. I think generally what Atlanta Magazine does is, is does a kind of restaurants issue of some sort every year. Sometimes it's, it's just the best new restaurants that have opened in the past year. And, you know, every so often we do like a big, you know, the 75 best restaurants in Atlanta type of piece. And for obvious reasons, they skipped the best new restaurants issue in 2020 because there was some other stuff going on. You know, we didn't just want those restaurants that had people who had been bold enough to open a restaurant in like in 2020 and early 2021 to get sort of lost in the shovel. So we just, since the last time there had been a, a restaurants issue, which is like mid 2019. And that way we could highlight places like Wonder Kid, which opened in Reynolds Town like, toward the end of 2019. Yeah, we just decided to cast kind of a wide net. 
If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitz, speaking with Mike Jordan, Christiane Lauterbach, and Sam Worley about their contributions to Atlanta Magazine's Best New Restaurants feature. I think many of us are curious about how you each divide and conquer metro Atlanta. How do you divide the work? Well, I know in this case, you know, we, the process, I don't want to give up Sam's secret sauce inside for how magazine <laughs> comes up with it, but it always sort of organically, for me at least, comes down to what did you truly enjoy? What are places that not only through your own set of parameters and measurements of what is a great restaurant and what are the good ones and what are the ones that you could skip. You go through all of these things and then a great test that I always have is just to ask other people to find out if I have a bias for certain types of things or if others had a similar experience. And what I love the most is not just a great experience, but consistency. And that's what really amazes me. And I love hustle. I love the entrepreneurial spirit. I love the ideas that come forth. And I love the classics as well. But what I want is if I'm going to recommend it, not even in a large platform such as an Atlanta magazine, but just to a good friend of mine, I don't want to be known as that person with the terrible recommendations. So <laughs> I do a little research in all sorts of ways. And again, there's nothing like going and going again and seeing if it's all hype or if this is something that's going to have some legs, some sea legs to it and stick around. Mm. Sam, are there assignments or do each of the critics, contributors just quite literally bring to the table where they want to go? Yeah, I think next time we do this, I would love to sort of all be in the room together a little more and, and sort of hash it out. But in this case, I kind of did it separately with Christian and Mike, like we each had kind of separate lists uh, that we were working off of. And I compiled picks, uh, everybody's favorites and what they wanted to write about and, and divvied up the work from there. And if I can add something to what Sam has just said, I mean, to me, it's as a critic, it's not so much about whether I like it or I don't like it. It's maybe liking is 10%, 20%. If you were an art critic, and you wrote about, you know, I don't really like Picasso, but he thought you're an idiot because it's not, there is a certain standard of excellence. There is history. There is, you know, the biography of the, all of that is super important in the evaluation of a restaurant. Uh, it's totally possible to like bad restaurants, actually. So for me, I'm still holding to the level of excellence of a restaurant as far as Mike is attached to consistency, I would have to say consistency hardly exists, even in the biggest food cities. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes I wish I was a movie critic because it wouldn't change, you know, in the next visit, so. But the point you make is important too, that you are evaluating much beyond just what tastes good to you. All good points. Out of all of the restaurants showcased in the Best New Restaurants 2021 article, I was hoping each of you would tell us a favorite or the most memorable. 
I don't know if it is the most memorable, but I'm going to just say the restaurant that I have really become attached to because it is such a new geography for that type of restaurant. I would have to pitch Noor Kitchen, N-U-R, which means the light in Arabic, I believe. This is an Israeli restaurant. And the idea of having an Israeli restaurant on Beaufort Highway is like super bizarre. But people who come from Dunwoody on 285 are really discovering the area of that restaurant. And the chef, Shai Lavi, whose name I always mispronounce, is a workhorse. He's a powerful chef. And he loves cooking. And that has been an exceptional restaurant for me. So if you go there, you must have like the schnitzel with hummus and salad. He bakes his own pita. It is not a fast food restaurant. This is a serious restaurant. I'm going with Newer Kitchen and I'm going to wait for my colleagues to tell me what they especially enjoyed. Oh, fantastic. Yes, when I read about that, I thought, Indeed, Israeli on Buford Highway, but Buford is so international. Why not one more nationality added to the mix? Absolutely, absolutely. Mike, can you narrow it down? I can. Uh, it's always tricky because the cover story, Talat Market, uh, is that was one that I wrote, and it's just so funky and so spirited and such a people's champion from food truck to brick and mortar in Summerhill. But if you want me to be honest, and what I like to do is think about, but where do I go the most? Where do I end up? And that would be Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue by uh, Chefs Todd Richards and Chefs Joshua Lee. I, I know in Georgia, we love barbecue. We are in the Southeast. And that's one of my places where, again, to my point, consistency, I've just, they don't miss. And it was one of those places where, again, I just found myself there over and over. And I live in East Point. So to go to the edge of, you know, the East Lake, uh, the other side of the East, you know, so to speak, and to go there for barbecue. And I actually have some great barbecue restaurants around me. There's a Pit Boss in Haightville is fantastic. Uh, also Black owned. So, you know, I'm, I was just very partial to asking other people because barbecue is a conversation you can really fall down a rabbit hole in. It's sort of one of the fine dinings of the South, I like to consider it. So that's the place where you might just see me in the outdoor patio, just enjoying some wings or smoked chicken or something because it, they just don't miss the mark. <laughs> Todd Richards is from Chicago, and I know he's very serious about food anthropology and the whole history and culture of food. Absolutely. His cookbook is fantastic. That's another reason I've become a big fan of his. The cookbook is Soul, uh, and it has, a, you know, it's a photo of collard greens on the cover. And, you know, that was enough to get me two things that I love. So, but I've, again, I try those recipes and I'm able to replicate them. And so I really dig in when I find someone that's doing something I love to find out how far and why the excellence goes. And Todd has been in too many places to have to prove over and over again that he's just serious, as you said, Lois, and I just respect him and he's never let me down with uh, anything. And, you know, I'm hoping to see more of what he and Joshua Lee do together. They're doing great things. 
I really loved Buena Gente, which is a Cuban sandwich shop that opened in Decatur in 2020. And they had been around in, in a different guise for a few years. They had a little teardrop camper that they started vending sandwiches out of, I think in like 2016 or, or, or thereabouts, but they opened a, a little spot in a strip mall indicator and they just make wonderful sandwiches and an amazing Cubano and um, a milkshake. And they have a little pastry case too. And it's just a, a sweet little spot um, where you can sit out on the, on the sidewalk in front. If the empanadas also, if you're going to go there, please don't. Oh, I haven't even had the empanadas. Sam Worley, freelance writer and deputy editor for Atlanta Magazine, Mike Jordan from Butter ATL, and Christiane Lauterbach, editor of Knife and Fork. They've been sharing their favorite new restaurants as recently published in Atlanta Magazine. In a moment, we'll hear about the love letters they each wrote to their favorite Atlanta establishments. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, we've been talking about Atlanta Magazine's Best New Restaurants feature with story contributors Mike Jordan from Butter ATL, Christiane Lauterbach of Knife and Fork, and Sam Worley, Atlanta Magazine's deputy editor. In the story, they each wrote love letters to a favorite Atlanta establishment. And here, Lauterbach tells us why she chose the old Fourth Ward Staple House for her love letter. Well, chefs have really been floundering around trying to put fancy dishes into little cardboard boxes and it hasn't worked for the most part. And I find that I'm fascinated by the power and the delicacy, which is normally impossible to get together. You've got those big meat kind of guys, and then you've got the tweezer guys who put little delicate things. And really, really Ryan Smith can do both. And the fact I'm a big gardener, the fact that you could eat in a garden, a beautiful garden with peppers and flowers and all that, but the quality of the food was undiminished. And let me tell you a secret about Ryan mm-hmm. Smith. 
the restaurant next door, which I've already reviewed, it will be published just in a little while. Bigger stuff is the ideal beer and food restaurant. And he has contributed a lot to the menu. He is an investor in the sense that he has contributed sweat equity. And I like a chef witty is powerful, who doesn't put on some kind of theater for the Instagram people, somebody who cooks with enormous power. And there is a chef at Bigger Stuff, he's a young guy, he's excellent, but a lot of the culinary direction is really Ryan Smith. And miracle of miracle, the beer is so delicious and so clean. I'm not a fan of IPA, normally I love the IPA, all their style, of beer are absolutely wonderful. So the owners are long time amateur brewers. And so that combination, these two restaurants next door to one another, that really gets me going. Fantastic. I was shocked when you admitted that you loved an IPA. <laughs> I was shocked myself. <laughs> it's a, it's a real, was, speaking of pivots. I was gonna say, I want to drink beer with Christian. Can we hook that up? Can we go drink <laughs> this has been a marvelous thing in recent years, don't you think? I think so, but a lot of time, it, it takes a little while for beers to sort of get funky, for the operators to capture this wild stuff that is in the atmosphere that you can hardly control. I mean, I've had beer all over the world. I drink beer in Japan, I drink beer everywhere. No problem. In America, I truly have beer anxiety and I have preferred in the past the great beers of the world rather than the great beer of the Gatria. But you know, that's special. I make a huge exception for bigger stuff and the quality of their beer, of their equipment, of their dedication. <laughs> Sam, you wrote your love letter to Waffle House. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about this southern chain restaurant? that makes it special and makes so many people feel like they're home when they dine there? That's a good question. It's, it's just uh, some sort of ineffable magic that, <laughs> that Waffle House has. You know, it's speaking of consistency, you sort of always know what you're gonna get food-wise, but vibes-wise, it's always an experience being in Waffle House. During the pandemic, I thought, what is the first place I want to go back to when I start going back to restaurants? <laughs> and the thing I came up with was Waffle House. And I still I still haven't managed to like make it back to one. So I haven't been to Waffle House in, in years. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's just some sort of special, special magic. I have friends. It's a couple, both of whom are vegan. And she is also gluten-free. These are not easy people to have over for a meal but they go to waffle house who knew what what do they order hash browns <laughs> there's something else i think they have but that was a surprise to me mike would you talk about your love letter to jr crickets yes I actually, JR Crickets, and this is getting into my job at Butter ATL and the vibes over there. You know, lemon pepper wings are 
really the Atlanta wing, just like the city of Buffalo has its own sort of wings. But JR Crickets, I was really happy to see them have a surge in popularity due to Donald Glover's television show, Atlanta, and getting the infamous mention of lemon pepper wet. Yes. So it's just a great thing that connects to this bright future for them. But it's also this history of this really weird place that looked like a huge eyesore across from the varsity near Georgia Tech, owned by, you know, a white gentleman, but adopted by the Black community of Atlanta so heavily and so heartfelt that there's an opportunity through JR Crickets to sort of like be a place where all of Atlanta, if we just decided we should all hang out there and eat some wings and drink some uh, some amazing German beer, uh, Christian might be familiar with Heineken, uh, you know, they, they they serve them by the pitcher and maybe not always as crisp as they should be, but cold and cheap. So, <laughs> but I just love that place because again, a place where you could go and get wings and fries, commiserate over the state of Atlanta sports teams, but it just has <laughs> oh, this origin not this story. Year. <laughs> well, we got one down and we're one and four, I think. We'll oh. see what's going on. We can do it. We can always win. I'm a big fan of places where people come together. So even to what Sam said about Waffle House, those kinds of places hold such a universally dear place in people's hearts locally. And, you know, they have Atlanta, you know, origins. I think J.R. Cricket's it's just now it's all over the place, but it's just knowing that it was right there by Georgia Tech and in the heart of Midtown, and now it's everywhere and it's made it to this cultural phenomenon. It's just something we should all be more proud of. Mm. In the Atlanta Magazine issue with your expansive story, you note how restaurants adapted to the strange and difficult circumstances faced during the pandemic, especially at the height of lockdown with no end in sight for when people could return to work, much less in a public space preparing food. How do each of you assess the way Atlanta's food scene provided comfort and maybe a touch of sanity during that time of uncertainty. One of the pieces in this issue was a wonderful article by um, Gray Chapman, who's a regular contributor to the magazine, who talked about how the pandemic sort of reshaped a lot of people's relationships with restaurants. You know, like what is a restaurant when you can't go and sit down and, and hang out there? People formed new customs around, you know, getting takeout or going to get ice cream as like a special occasion. So Gray put a call out on Twitter. Or were there, did you have like special places that you went during the pandemic or what did you really come to rely on? And I was scrolling through replies to this tweet and there were like dozens of them, maybe hundreds of them. And they were very touching because so many people told little stories about, you know, how restaurants had kept them sane during the pandemic by creating makeshift outdoor spaces or, um, you know, selling toilet paper and gallons of milk in addition to food or doing food drives for their neighbors or things like that. So one opportunity we had was to reflect a little bit about how people's relationships with restaurants had evolved during the past however many months. It's a real comment on the community at large and the restaurant community that sense of coming together provides. Yeah, it was really nice to see so many businesses kind of stepping up and pitching in. 
Sam Worley is a freelance writer and deputy editor for Atlanta Magazine. Mike Jordan is the editor-in-chief for Butter ATL, as well as a food and culture writer. And Christiane Lauderbach is Atlanta Magazine's restaurant columnist and the longtime editor of Knife and Fork. More information about the magazine's Best New Restaurants feature is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Arish Theatre teaches us about the importance of being earnest. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Marriage, class, social expectations, double life, scandal, and the lifestyle of the English upper class are targets for satire in Oscar Wilde's play The Importance of Being Earnest. A new version of the classic will be performed by Arish Theatre Company tomorrow and running through the 16th. Arish co-founder and director Kathleen McManus joins us now along with actor John Ammerman, who portrays Lady Bracknell. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Wonderful to be talking to you. Kathleen, before we get to how you have re-envisioned this classic, for those unfamiliar with this story, would you give us a synopsis of the play? It's kind of a simple plot. A young man named Jack likes to come up to town from his country house in disguise as somebody named Ernest, and he cavorts with his friend Algernon, and both of them, it seems, are leading double lives. Jack leads a double life in town, and Algie likes to lead a double life in the country, what Oscar Wilde called bunburying. And it gets them in all kinds of trouble with the women, the young women that they hope to marry, because they both decide that their name is Ernest, which is a disguise, and the young women are determined to marry young men named Ernest. And that is the most important thing to them. Not character, not social position, not love, but the name Ernest. Uh, And so all kinds of mayhem ensues from this double life. And Oscar Wilde engages in some wordplay because Ernest is spelled like the word that is a virtue rather than E-R-N-E-S-T. Actually, it's spelled the way, you know, everybody's used to seeing it as a Christian name, E-R-N-E-S-T. But yes, in the title of the play, Oscar is playing with the, with the word E-A-R-N-E-S-T so that he can make a point about what is trivial, what is serious, when people are wearing a public mask, when they are revealing their private face. I'm not sure that Oscar held 
earnestness in high regard. I think he much preferred witty people, but he is absolutely making a play on those two words, the name Ernest and the word Ernest. Please tell us how you have re-envisioned this story. A few years back, I heard of a production that was incorporating steampunk elements, and I didn't see it, and I didn't know where it was. It was sort of like it was this wonderful rumor. And I began to think, well, what would a steampunk production of the importance of being earnest be like? The concept of steampunk takes some of our modern amenities and brings them back to the Victorian age, although everything would be powered by steam. So clocks and timepieces and the locomotive, and of course, even the telephone was already around. So as I was imagining, what would Jack and Algie and Cecily and Gwendolyn be like in a steampunk era, I envisioned them with personal phones in their hands. And so Algie uses his to record pithy expressions and Gwendolyn is uh, the master mistress of taking a selfie and Cecily loves to use hers, you know, before the uh, opposable thumbs, she's using it to take dictation in the way that the old Western Union took it. And, but Jack was always losing things. His is like an iPhone 4. It's just, it's tiny. He keeps, he keeps mislaying it. So they're very much modern young people in terms of this attachment that we all seem to now have with our personal devices, but they're very Victorian. And so that was sort of the kernel for the idea of using steampunk for this production. And Lady Bracknell, and I must say Lady Bracknell also has a personal communication device, but hers is used because, you know, she's trying to put her playlist together for the last party of the season. It's, it's like a little musical toy. And we have one more surprise up our sleeve. One character is being portrayed by a robot. Oh, my. Yes. Okay. This is definitely not Victorian. Although um, they might have approved, <laughs> given where exploration of science was headed in that era. John, you are portraying Lady Bracknell. How would you describe her character? One of the things about Lady Bracknell, of course, is she's the old guard, as it were, as compared to the younger characters in the story. So she uh, obviously represents a number of uh, social and cultural uh, and aristocratic um, views on uh, certain principles, protocols, etiquette expectations about how to behave, as well as, in a, in a sense, repressing one's own human instincts for uh, maintaining behavior and social uh, processes. So for me, it's really about getting grounded in the foundation of the original play and understanding what uh, Wilde is um, developing with Lady Bracknell, and then making certain adjustments whatsoever based on the uh, sensitivity of the production that we're developing. <laughs> Kathleen, why did you want to cast John in a historically female role? There is a long tradition of men, actors, who are male, uh, playing Lady Bracknell, particularly in the classically trained world. 
of course, this play was written in the 1890s, so it's a 20th century inclusion in the production history. Some of the actors that we most admire uh, have played Lady Bracknell in the last 40 years. Going back to a 1975 Stratford Canada production, which starred William Hutt, who is an actor we both revere and admire. He probably is best known to American audiences for the third season of Slings and Arrows from about 15 years ago. Um, most recently, Brian Bedford played Lady Bracknell on Broadway following a Stratford production. And this would have been about 10 years ago, um, but also Jeffrey Rush, David Suchet, just a whole list of Shakespeareans, classical actors have tackled this role and hopes to do so. Not, you know, in, in England, there's the spirit of the panto but Lady Bracknell is meant to be played straight, if you will. It might have something to do with the sensibilities of Oscar Wilde himself. We want to, to nod to um, his life and his struggles. And he was very interested in revising how women were educated in Great Britain at the time. Before he wrote The Importance of Being Earnest, he was the editor of the ladies' world, which he transformed into the woman's world, a magazine that he wanted to take from gossip rag to something that was vitally important to um, women's concerns and what women were thinking and writing about in England at the time. I asked the question, what would Oscar want? And, uh, and the answer I got was, cast John as Lady Bracknell. <laughs> oh, wow. John, so what perspective do you bring to Lady Bracknell? I think one of the things that I clearly want to avoid is portraying her as a caricature, because caricature carries some degree of mockery to it. Um, my focus is actually kind of in two ways. One is sincerity as well as style. The style of the play has um, its very foundation and Victorian sort of movement and action. So it's really maintaining that sense of social manner and etiquette uh, that's consistent with the play, but really bringing a sincerity to this woman, understanding her point of view and how absolutely clear she is about what her expectations are of other people's behavior, principles, that kind of thing. So I really want to bring a sincerity to her and not give her a, a caricature characterization that's um, actually making fun of her. She, everything she says and does, she actually believes in. So I want to be sure that there is a very a respectful dignity to her and to uh, allow the comedy actually comes out of the fact that of her sincerity and what she says, rather than me trying to push those elements um, they come out in their own natural way, the way the language is delivered and how the relationships she carries um, within the play itself. So that's where my focus is, so that I'm not making fun of her, but actually working to really give her a great deal of character dignity. You two have been married for well over 30 years. <laughs> With this arrangement, this professional arrangement, Kathleen, you're directing John. Does the fact that you are married help elevate the performance in achieving what you both want out of the scenes? I hope so. We are the elders in the room now. And, you know, just 
by virtue of how we work and what professionalism we bring to the room, both as individuals and in our working relationship, other artists are watching us. So there are rehearsal skirts and there are props and there is movement. There is, you know, there are deadlines and we stay on top of that. The way that I think we talk to each other in the hall, this, by the way, is, this is the very first time I've ever directed John, but of course we have been in rehearsal halls together before uh, over these long years. We've been married since 1985 and we've had an opportunity, mostly in classical theater, mostly with Shakespeare to work together, not always as co-stars, almost never as co-stars. We'll be in the same rehearsal hall, but we will barely have any scenes together. So I think that it's important to, to bring your respect for each other, to allow yourselves to be who you are. You know, we're not, we're not the same person. We're two very different kind of people. And to maintain that, that level of respect, John has very high standards and which he imposes on himself. And just having him in the room, I think, makes everybody else kind of, you know, stand up a little taller. It's lovely to see how these traditions get passed down. Yeah, I think too, one of the things that we always sort of remind ourselves of as we've been, we've had careers is our good fortune. You know, we sort of look at each production as an addition of our good fortune as being artists and still working. And I think we love and adore our work so very much that there is a wonderful joy about how we sort of share uh, what we're learning and what we're discovering in our work. And um, even if we're working on individual, you know, separate projects, there's something nice when we finally get to collaborate is um, embellishing in that joy. And I really mean that. We take every production as if it's another piece of good fortune, another gift that we get to keep going. And um, we both share that. So I think doing a production together like this is has its own specialty to it because we're just ready to dig in every day and get going. And we understand how each of us works. So we sort of feed on that. So it's actually a pretty wonderful thing to share when we have the chance. That's a good way to put it. This show is being performed at the Academy Theater in Hapeville. What's it like to perform in this new venue? It's a beautiful venue. Uh, you know, John will actually have his debut at this new theater before I will. We both have a history with the Academy. John as a performer and as a director, myself as a company member back in the 1980s. So we're friends with, with Robert Drake and very old friends with Lauren Fye. It's delightful to see that the city of Hapeville has embraced having this beautiful new venue down on their main street called Central Avenue. It's sweet. I'll, I'll let John talk about what it's like to perform on the stage because I'm mostly sitting out in the house as I bark my orders. Well, you know, I have to say that it's an extraordinary joy to see the survival of the Academy Theater and to see this happen to them, to have this beautiful new theater um, that they can bring to the public and suddenly find yourself there as a performer, in a sense, sharing. It's been like 30 years maybe since I've had any kind of connection with the Academy, but particularly with our relationship with Lauren, to be able to come back 
and suddenly be in this wonderful space that they have. I really applaud them because they're also opening the door to many artists in Atlanta for us to come and share our work with them. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. And I think people that will come there will actually be sort of gobsmacked about the beauty of it and uh, be able to see um, this uh, production within the context of it. So it's pretty, it's really quite wonderful, but I applaud the Academy. I'm so proud of them to keep going and to survive and bring new things to Atlanta. Mm. Kathleen, when you were speaking about the steampunk sensibility, really mirroring in many ways the Victorian era setting, I'm wondering what lessons do you think are most relevant today from the importance of being earnest? Well, Oscar Wilde called it a trivial comedy for serious people. And I was reading about the history. I was very fortunate to uh, have some dramaturgy uh, provided to us by our old friend, Lori Dahl. And I was deep in the archive earlier today, like, oh, what do I want to say about this? I think, although much has changed, very little has changed about us, it seems. You know, there's a lot being said about the dangers of social media and that social media has amplified what is perhaps not brightest and best in our natures as a species. But as much as as we think, you know, we're so self-absorbed today, clearly Oscar Wilde was pointing to self-absorption within, you know, human beings 130 years ago. So as I watch my young performers handle, you know, they're both very, they're striving to be like Victorians. They're, they're actors who are taking pride in their work. They're trained actors. They come from many different places, as well as Atlanta. And they sound very Victorian, but they're all clutching these devices because my our good friend, Kyle Crew, who uh, designed and created these marvelous steampunk looking phones. They're so much fun. I wish the audience could see an image of them up on the screen as the actors, because the audience won't ever get to see them as clearly as the actors do. They have brought themselves and this notion of having a device always in your hand with them back 130 years with these characters. And so when I see Gwendolyn take a selfie or Algie decide that, oh, that's a good expression. I'm going to repeat it into my device. I am just struck by clearly how little we have changed. And I know, you know, we all know, we've, we've been told that lifetimes are not very long. You know, they're the blink of an eye. So, so really how much have we changed since the 1890s? If we can comfortably take a device like, like a phone back with us, to this era, and it fits right in. It's both delightful and terrifying. Arish Theatre co-founder and director Kathleen McManus and actor John Ammerman. The importance of being earnest is on stage at the Academy Theatre in Hapeville tomorrow through the 16th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest is Mary Frances Early. Her memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, My Journey as the First Black Graduate of the University of Georgia, richly details growing up in Atlanta with a love for books and music, her involvement in civil rights, and a life devoted to education. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.